Welcome to Talk Plus Water, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the world of water with those making waves. My name is Todd Bottler, and I'm your host for Talk Plus Water. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Texas Plus Water and the Texas Water Journal. You can sign up for Texas Plus Water by visiting texasplusWater.org, and you can sign up for the Texas Water Journal at texaswaterjournal.org. Both publications are free. My guest today is Joel Scott. Joel is an attorney with the Natural Resources Defense Council. He works to develop federal and state policy solutions to address the impacts of climate change. In particular, he focuses on addressing sea level rise and extreme weather events and their connection to flooding disasters. Joel, welcome and thank you for being part of Talkless Water. Hi, Todd. Thank you for having me on. I look forward to the podcast. Great. So let's let's start out with your background in water. How did you first become involved with water? Primarily by, by luck. So uh, the job with NRDC is my first position um, since law school, uh, focusing on environmental issues. And before I was uh, at law school, I was actually working on the opposite end. Uh, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa working on drought-related issues, um, mostly looking at how to prevent erosion and desertification uh, from excessive heat and drought. And so working on water was a bit of a change, but a a great one. I really enjoy what I'm doing on it. And um, I kind of fell into it by being hired by the water and climate team at NRDC. Joel, tell us about the focus of your work for NRDC. Sure. So I work on the water and climate team uh, as one of their attorneys. And the water and climate team's mission is primarily to assess how both federal and state policy can be um, developed or amended to make sure that communities are better prepared for the impacts of climate change. And so as part of that, I guess you recently authored an article for the American Bar Association's Natural Resources an environment uh, publication, and the title of that article was A Rising Tide Lifts All Damage Costs, the Need for a Federal Flood Protection Standard. So why don't you tell us about that article? I'd be happy to. So I wrote an article for the American Bar Association that really gets at the issue of how the way current um, federally funded infrastructure projects are being built is not taking into account the change in climate. So a lot of the ways that we design um, and plan our infrastructure is based on the past. We look at past climatic um, conditions as a judge for the future, but climate change is really sort of like a wrench thrown into that, into the gears of that approach because it's changing how, past climate history has gonna, has been. And so we really need to think about when we build infrastructure projects, we're building them with a bigger margin of safety. Um, and so the article addresses the change in climate conditions, for example, like how sea level rise is increasing, there's gonna be bigger rain events, which impact floodplains, and how the way we currently build infrastructure is inadequate. And that's why um, helping to either elevate that infrastructure above current flood levels, often the 1% annual chance flood level um, is the is the basic standard, um, or just flood proofing them, it would be very beneficial for not only protecting that property, but also just protecting the assets on which communities rely. 
So one of the things I liked about your article is that you have a lot of um, research results summarized. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you fit into your argument well, I think. I want to read something that was in your article. A federal emergency management agency-sponsored study conducted by AECOM, a multinational engineering firm, estimates that riverine environments may experience, on average, a 45% expansion of the typical 100-year floodplain by 2100. And the paragraph goes on to say, this enlargement of the floodplain is largely attributed to changing uh, precipitation patterns. So that that really struck out, I mean, struck me, struck out too, strikes out too, Dana. Um, but it struck me uh, because that's a, I mean, it's a massive expansion of the, uh, you know, to be now if you, you know, you have your floodplain, which we also call the 1% uh, floodplain. You got a 1% chance every year yep. that you're going to be flooded. And so if that expands by 45%, that's just a, a massive increase in the area that is subject to, to flooding and, and flood damage. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, the changing um, precipitation pattern, mostly just heavier rainstorms, coupled with changing development patterns, um, just you know, paving over more land to build homes and malls and, and stuff uh, combined really do change the floodplains. And so when you have an expansion like that, an average of 45% expansion by the end of the century, we're talking about some major changes that will be impacting infrastructure that's built today uh, if it's not planned for. Um, the 1% annual chance floodplain or the 100-year floodplain is often the basic measurement used by FEMA to delineate their floodplain. And you know, a lot of times people look at the floodplain map and say, I'm either in or I'm out. And if I'm out, I'm good. But that's not accurate. It's not a binary choice like that, especially with climate change. That floodplain is going to be growing. And if we're not building infrastructure with, you know, uh, that's supposed to last maybe 40, 50 years with, with that lifespan in mind about how the climate's going to change around it. It's, it's kind of setting it up for failure. Now, this, this article concludes uh, essentially with you saying that we need a new federal uh, flood protection standard that requires a higher margin of safety for siting and design for federally funded infrastructure projects to mm-hmm. better protect uh, those projects and the communities and residents uh, that rely on that infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I understand that, uh, you know, in part, uh, the uh, federal regulations on uh, floodplains have been altered recently. And so in response, you're saying that, look, we need this new federal flood standard. And so talk to us a little bit about that. How, what, what's been repealed recently uh, that might have uh, covered this area, and uh, how is what you're proposing, you know, different, or is it just the same as as the recent rollback in regulations? Sure. So in 2015, the Obama administration issued Executive Order 13690, and that created what they called the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard, which applied to all federally funded infrastructure projects. So basically, if you were a federal agency and you wanted to either build a um, office 
building yourself or provide a grant to someone else, like a state, to build perhaps a hospital, um, you would have had to abide by that standard. And what that standard required was a higher margin of safety to what we're accustomed to for flooding. So right now, um, most structures are just built to the height of the 100-year flood or the 1% annual chance flood. That federal flooders management standard required that they be elevated um, according to three different approaches. One would be two feet for non-critical buildings like you know, your typical office building, three feet for critical infrastructure like hospitals, police stations, fire stations, or um, in which was encouraged in coastal areas, an assessment of the lifespan of the project and how the climate and flood conditions would change around it, and particularly sea level rise, and then try to build above the probably the medium projection to make sure those structures were safe. Um, that got underway in 2015. Uh, agencies started developing rules to implement it. And then in 2017, 10 days before Hurricane Harvey struck, the Trump administration revoked it. And the standards all reverted back to only build infrastructure to the 100-year flood level or the 1% annual chance flood level. Uh, and that's going to have some big repercussions in terms of how we build new federally funded infrastructure and even rebuild certain infrastructure. So under um, some big hurricanes that have hit recently, a lot of infrastructure was damaged. Public infrastructure was damaged. And according to the law, if it was damaged by more than 50% of its value, it has to be rebuilt. Um, and the federal flood risk management standard had required it to be rebuilt um, with that higher protection in mind. Now that it's been revoked, it's likely to be rebuilt to this um, current standard, uh, which kind of just sets it up for failure because we know it's already in, it's, it's not working. So this standard would, uh, you know, obviously uh, reduce damage to these facilities that are built in the 1% floodplain and save the federal government uh, a lot of money and probably everybody else. Mm -hmm. and uh, also uh, reduce uh, the potential for uh, the loss of life within that same area. That's correct. Yeah, so if, um, federal agencies started implementing a new flood protection standard, which I advocate for in the article, um, it would better protect those assets. Um, and as you mentioned, that has a lot of um, co-benefits, uh, primarily you know, making sure that the federal government is not constantly paying to rebuild something over and over again. And federal government gets its money from taxpayers. So it's just prudent use of taxpayer dollars. Another big co-benefit is, um, you know, reduced interruptions. So a lot of times after a major flood, especially in um, areas, urban areas, you see water structure, infrastructure going offline. If like in a water treatment plant gets flooded and it wasn't protected well, that has a big issue for, you know, just health and safety as well as business interruption. If people can't use water to operate their businesses. And so by having a higher flood protection standard uh, for these federally funded assets, it really does ensure that um, we're better protecting them. So not only we're just being more prudent with our dollars, but also planning for a future that's going to be a little more uh, tenuous in terms of flooding than what we're accustomed to. Now, Austin had some experience with a situation like that with a water treatment plant that was flooded oh, a year or so ago. So, so you know, I've got, I'm familiar with that a little bit here. Um, so let me just ask you a different question, flooding. You know, in the past, we've approached flood you know, mitigate uh, by, um, 
or addressed it by, you know, building a dam or building less structure to that. Uh, but now um, we have a, a range of non-structural solutions as well, you know, restoring wetlands, uh, uh, using conservation easements to protect floodplains, other things mm-hmm. like that. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, kind of those those two approaches to mitigating uh, flood risk? Sure. So for, um, you know, future of flood mitigation, the question is kind of like, should we be focusing more on the structural solutions like we uh, have done in the past, you know, your big levees, dams, seawalls, or, you know, your non-structural solutions, um, restoring wetlands, building living shorelines. And um, my answer to that is, Yes, we should be focusing more so on the non-structural approaches. However, my overly, I guess, to the point answer is, is based on a number of factors. The first one is that large-scale structural solutions like levees and seawalls um, are fixed in place, uh, which means that you know, those projects commit communities to current predictions of heavy rainstorms and current sea levels, um, and they cannot be easily adjusted. Um, if weather patterns, land use, or other risk factors change. And we know those risk factors are changing. As we discussed earlier, you know, that study that came out from AECOM um, projects that on average, our floodplains are going to increase by 45% in riverine communities, uh, and even more so uh, possibly for coastal communities. Um, and because of that, if we're only building structural solutions that don't take into account that future, um, that are really just meant to protect today, they're not going to do what they're intended to do, and that is to protect communities. Whereas your non-structural approaches, they allow for a bit of flexibility. Um, so, and that's because like with a, a living shoreline, it can adjust if it has room to do so as tides um, go further inland due to sea level rise. Or if you restore a floodplain, you know, you have an ability for that flood water to kind of move into the area that's naturally meant to move into um, and not get pushed down the line. And so that's one big reason. Another one is just um, non-structural solutions have more co-benefits than a big levy. And a big levy is meant to do one thing, and that's just to block floodwaters from coming into a community. Um, but with non-structural solutions like living shorelines or, um, you know, like floodplain restoration, you get more than just flood protection. You also get co-benefits like water filtration in case of preserving wetlands, uh, which helps reduce pollutants. You get ecosystem benefits. And so like in coastal areas, um, not building a ma- massive levee or a seawall, but instead doing a living shoreline, you can incorporate things like oyster reefs, which help the fishery industry. Um, and lastly, it uh, kind of prevents what uh, we often refer to as levee wars. So especially where I'm from in Illinois, um, up and down the Mississippi River in states like Missouri, up into Iowa, and, and then back down, there are a lot of levees. Uh, communities build them because the river can flood pretty frequently and highly. Um, but the problem with that is that when you build a levee and you make it bigger than it was before, it just pushes the water further down the river. So while your community is protected, the next community down is not. So what does that mean? They have to build a levee higher. And then on down the line until you're looking at this huge levee war where communities are trying to outbuild each other just to stay safe. And you don't have that problem with natural solutions. So, you know, and, and part of all this you know, I think is our, you know, kind of assessment of risk when we are, you know, making investments. 
and real estate and, and other kinds of mm-hmm. investments. And, and so, you know, I, I read something recently I want to ask you about, um, an analysis by the nonpartisan National Bureau of Economic Research showed that when prospective real estate buyers knew their property was at an increased risk for flooding, they were less willing to pay as much for that property um, than they would be for a property where the flood risk was lower, which makes sense, right? And uh, so they found in this uh, research that the losses from extreme weather extreme weather events were rising, and you know, as you know, sea level rises and and the climate warms, and uh, that the the losses are mostly related to uh, the concentration of of people and investments uh, in areas that are the most vulnerable to flooding, and so you know that this same study kind of concluded. Markets really aren't favorable that are laid to flooding, and uh, I'm just curious. Do you think that that conclusion um, is right? That you know, if people knew more about uh, the risks associated with floodplains due to climate change or anything else, that they'd be uh, you know less uh, willing to invest in those areas. I, I agree with uh, the findings of that study. And I think, um, you know, a significant barrier to encouraging climate smart development is just access to information about flood risk. So the, the more informed people are, the better able they are to make smart decisions about uh, how much risk they're willing to take on. But if they don't have access to that information, it's really hard to kind of internalize that both in the market or you know, just in their own actions. Uh, and when it comes to flood risk, there is a big information gap. Uh, you see it in the pricing of flood insurance. You see it in yeah, the inadequacy of flood risk disclosure laws across the country. And you, you even really see it in the, the flood risk data that is made available by FEMA. Um, you know, when you think about the flood risk disclosure laws, you know, the majority of laws in this country are fairly inadequate when it comes to what buyers are told about flood risk. Um, NRDC did a study about two years ago now that ranked states based on the adequacy of their disclosure law when it comes to flooding. And we found about two thirds of the states um, had a grade of D or lower. Um, they either had no statutory or regulatory requirement that a seller disclosed to a buyer the f- flood history. Uh, so like in Missouri, there's no statutory or regulatory requirement that a seller tell a buyer if the house is flooded before. Um, they're required to tell the buyer if the house is a meth lab, but not whether it's ever flooded. And <laughs> so in a state like Missouri, which is very flood prone, you think, you know, they should be telling people about their flood risk. Um, other states, you know, they only really have to tell the, the buyer if they're in a floodplain. And most of the time that's not really revealed until the actual closing. Uh, and so that has a huge problem with buyers getting into these homes that they think are safe, but they're not. And so having more um, disclosure when it comes to flooding would be, would be prudent. And Texas actually, I believe in the last year has passed one of the best laws in the nation when it comes to disclosure on flooding. Um, they require a, a, a slew of detail uh, that must be disclosed to buyers about you know, past flood histories, insurance requirements for the property, 
um, how much that insurance costs and, and other aspects that really are beneficial to helping make an informed decision. Yeah, we've had, um, I mean, we've had one big flood after the other here in Texas and the legislature um, has uh, definitely responded to that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the Texas War Journal has a recent article about that that uh, I encourage everybody to go take a look at. So you mentioned the flood insurance program, or people also call it the NFIP. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about that and whether you think it's you know, been effective in reducing flood losses in the United States. I mean, I, I think the, the story that people hear regularly is about people, you know, who have got a house in the floodplain, 1% floodplain maybe, and uh, it's destroyed by a flood and then they, they get money to rebuild it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that happens over and over again. So tell us a little bit about the National Lead Insurance Program and, and whether you think it's effective or not. Sure. So the National Flood Insurance Program, for better or worse, is the predominant influence um, on flooding, uh, I guess you say floodplain development in, in this country. So uh, it's not just an insurance program. Um, there's really like three legs to the stool that makes up the NFIP. Um, insurance is one aspect, but the program also requires that if a community wants to make insurance available to its residents, then that community has to adopt uh, minimum uh, building and land use uh, regulations or ordinances to protect against flooding. And it also um, produces floodplain maps. And so floodplain maps are often used to help determine the insurance rates, but they're also used extensively by communities to assess their risk. Um, one of the benefits of the flood program is that the minimum criteria. Um, so at least there's some level of protection that has to be accounted for when developing a floodplain. Um, the most impactful is that uh, communities that adopt the NFIP have to build um, their homes to the height of the 1% annual chance flood. Um, and when you look at the, the insurance payouts of the program, you notice that a lot of the homes that uh, are insured um, are those that were built before the flood program began, uh, and they uh, flood frequently. Um, NRDC, uh, through a FOIA request, actually got a list of the most uh, repeatedly flooded properties in the United States, um, and they made up less than 1% of all the NFIP policies, but accounted for um, well over um, almost 10% of the claims. Uh, so they uh, are a big drain on the program. Um, but overall, the program, yeah, as I said, provides insurance and provides uh, some basic criteria to which homes need and other buildings need to be built. And they also provide floodplain maps. Um, floodplain maps are important because of the development aspect, but there are a lot of concerns about them being backward looking. So they are based on the historical record of flooding. Um, but as we've discussed, you know, climate change is uh, altering how floods happen and the maps don't really reflect that. So you might look at a map and say, Oh, you know, this, I'm just outside the hundred year floodplain. My house is going to be safe, but the floodplains growing. And I think um, one of the best things that FEMA could do would be to uh, at least as an advisory layer um, on the map is include uh, future conditions about um, hydrology changes. Well, let me ask you about that. Uh, the uh, FEMA flood maps I was looking at some research that was published a couple of years ago in environmental research labs, in article, um, estimates of 
the future flood risk in the coterminous United States. And it essentially says that there are 41 million U.S. residents that live along uh, the nation's rivers that are at risk of flooding and that that's actually two, you know, and a half to over, you know, it says 2.6 to 3.1 times higher than the amount uh, of risk that uh, FEMA, uh, you know, uh, I guess has determined based on their maps. And so, I mean, do you think that's it's reasonable that the, that the floodplain maps uh, underestimated by that much, you know, two and a half to over three times? Uh, absolutely. So um, one thing that the, uh, I guess the, one of the big shortcomings of the, the floodplain mapping program is that it only maps about one third of the country. So that means two thirds of the country don't have any floodplain maps, uh, which means there's a lot of information that's missing. Now, granted, the majority of the people or the majority of the populations, um, country's population are in mapped areas, but that means new areas that are developing are not mapped. And so those people are at risk of flooding and don't, and don't know about it. And as far as the, um, the mapped areas, you know, the study was able to do a much more granular analysis of the floodplains. Um, so they looked at, streams and rivers um, that are uh, considered too small to do uh, appear on a floodplain map from FEMA. And so there's a lot of little tributaries and, you know, backyard um, gullies with water and them that don't get mapped, but do flood and put people at risk. And so that's what the study really highlights is that the mapping program is, is missing a lot. Um, I think you're going to start to see some big changes. So with new technology, it's easier to map. Um, you know, FEMA doesn't use LIDAR uh, to do mapping, but that's something that's pretty common practice now. And I think you'll start to see that in the future with uh, just the need to, to be better at it. Um, and FEMA is looking at ways to improve their mapping. So let me kind of shift a little bit to wetlands uh, because a lot of areas in the floodplains or, or wetlands um, or wetlands are commonly found in floodplains. And uh, the regulations uh, that protect wetlands, in part, through the Clean Water Act, uh, have been altered recently. And uh, the uh, waters of the United States uh, under the Clean Water Act, or also known as WOTUS, I guess the acronym, um, has reduced the area that has been given protection uh, from, uh, you know, these wetlands being filled in or, or other mm-hmm. impacts. And so, um, you know, I'm interested in, in what you think about, you know, the, uh, you know, protection of wetlands and relationship to flooding. Um, or where there is a relationship. Yeah. So the Clean Water Act has really driven improvements in our nation's waterways since the early 70s. And for instance, over the past several decades, bacteria and sediment um, decreased and, you know, dissolved oxygen levels increased, which makes for just healthier water systems. Um, They're more fishable. Um, A big part of that is because raw sewage now is required to get treated before it's dumped in our rivers. Um, also, the Clean Water Act prevents industry from dumping about 700 billion pounds of toxic pollutants into the um, nation's water rollies every year. 
uh, and the rate of wetlands loss, which is probably the most important um, in terms of flooding, has decreased substantially compared to the pre to the pre um, Clean Water Act era. And you know, when people think of wetlands, they're not just these uh, like you know annoying like malaria plague swamps that you know for history were often seen as a, a nuisance. Wetlands are really crucial to a healthy ecosystem, not only in terms of just reducing pollution, but providing a way for floodwaters to kind of um, attenuate. So they're not building up in damaging infrastructure. Um, unfortunately, the Trump administration has finalized a, a new rule that really guts the Clean Water Act. Um, the, the dirty water rule, as, as we tend to call it, um, kind of declares that numerous water bodies that for a long time have been protected by the law, even before the rule proposed by the Obama administration that the Trump uh, administration rolled back are no longer to be protected. Um, so that means with this rollback, the Trump administration um, has made it easier for these waterways to not only be polluted, but also for wetlands um, that really are crucial to help reducing flooded to be destroyed. Um, and so because wetlands serve as like natural flood barriers, um, you could see a increase in flooding um, by rolling back some of the core protections that the Clean Water Act itself provided, not even talking about the extension that the Obama administration had proposed to it. Um, and so I think the, the dirty water rule um, really will have a negative impact on how, um, on how we address flood risk in this country. So, I mean, from, from my personal experience, uh, you know, used to uh, go to Houston quite a bit in the Houston area when I was young and uh, some areas I used to visit, which were, you know, wetlands and, mm -hmm. and out, out country that, you know, those, those were filled in and many of them and, you know, came housing developments. And, and so, I mean, it, it's similar way that, you know, a kind of this I mean you're filling in the wetlands and so the water which may have been stored uh, by the wetland during a flood now ends up going downstream uh, and flooding out somebody else right. and so you know that's that's one of the things that's it's really occurred to me you know we're worried about flooding and we're, we're trying to figure out uh, ways to reduce flood risks, but at the same time, we're making it easier for, for people to develop areas that, that flood. And by developing them, increase the risk of flooding to somebody else downstream, mm -hmm. uh, which just does not <laughs> seem logical. No, it's not. It's, a, it's definitely counterintuitive in terms of, you know, talking on one hand about the need to better mitigate and protect buildings and infrastructure from flooding. And on the other, going ahead and paving our natural protection against flooding. Um, I think in the Houston area, because so much of the region had been developed and paved over and, um, you know, these natural uh, uh, features that help absorb water and rain um, is what contributed to a lot of the flooding you've seen in that area in the last, you know, three or four years. Um, and then it, it's only going to get worse as bigger rainstorms become more um, common with uh, climate change. And so we really need to be thinking about the broader kind of concept about how we develop. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't develop. It just means we should develop smart. You know, Joel, I really enjoyed our discussion today. Um, 
Can you tell our listeners how they can find out more about flood issues? Sure. So there's a couple of good places to go. Um, if you go to the NRDC website, um, www.nrdc.org and kind of look at their um, climate adaptation pages. There's a lot of information there about the various programs that we're advocating for to help with flooding. So there's information about the flood protection standard. There's information about our proposed reforms to the National Flood Insurance Program, as well as some information about just managed retreat. Um, so there's certain areas that are going to be underwater no matter how high we build those buildings. So it's actually more cost effective to buy those homeowners out um, voluntarily uh, and help them move somewhere safer and allow that to become natural floodplain again. It's a big, uh, big, big issue for us um, just because we realize that some people, they truly don't want to stay in their homes um, because they flood so much. And so they need to be given in and out. And so th there's that area to look at. I'd also recommend checking out this new study by the National Institute of Building Sciences called Mitigation Saves 2019. Um, it's about 700 pages long, but there's a lot of executive <laughs> summaries to it that talks about uh, uh, the different mitigation approaches you can use for flooding. And it talks about you know, not only building to code, um, the most recent code, which is the 2018 uh, iCodes, but also exceeding code. Uh, they found that in some areas, even if you built five feet above the height of the 1% annual chance floodplain, you're still going to have a really good cost benefit or sorry, benefit cost ratio. Um, and so it's really useful for, I think, developers and community planners um, to take a look at that study uh, and learn about how they can mitigate their flood risks. Great. Joel, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you, Todd. I, I really had fun. It was, it was a good time. This has been Talkless Water. My guest today was Joel Scotta, an attorney with the Natural Resources Defense Council. My name is Todd Butler, the host of Talkless Water. Let's talk water again soon.